So last week we finished Isaiah 46. Isaiah 47, we're going to deal with Babylon. So I'm going to back up to the beginning of 46 and just sort of remind you of something. And then we'll go down to 47. I'm not going to read all of 46. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. One of the things I said last time is both Bel and Nebo are Babylonian deities. And Nebo is Nebuchadnezzar, which means Nebo preserved my firstborn son. So we're talking about Babylonian deities. And of course, the metaphor here is you've got to carry them in order to get them around because they don't have any legs of their own. And then God, at the rest of the chapter, will say, in contradistinction to these gods who you have to carry, I will carry you, Israel. The play there is the image of who's carrying whom. And in the case of idols, men have to carry them, put them on beasts of burdens or wagons or something and carry them around. But in the case of God, he's the one that carries his people. So now we're down to 47, and we're going to do Babylon here. And you're going to want to be in Revelation also. It's in Revelation 14, 16, 17, and 18. So you'll find it in all those places. And I think where I'll probably fetch up is in Revelation 17, as good a place as any for the point I want to make. So Isaiah 47 now. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Obviously, Babylon is depicted pretty much throughout Scripture as a woman, feminine. And the idea that she is pampered, she is regarded with honor and awe and so forth is pretty much throughout scripture. That fixed into change in Revelation. So what we have with Babylon, you know, the virgin daughter of Babylon, uh, I think I said three or four times ago that one of the commentaries I read was this construct of a virgin daughter, a city or a nation or a virgin daughter of whatever. The idea there is she hasn't been conquered. So at this point in the narrative in Isaiah, Babylon has not been conquered. In fact, we're over a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar is going to take Israel into captivity. So Babylon at this point is actually not a terribly major city on the Euphrates. And you all know there's two Babylonian empires. There's the old Babylonian Empire, which would have been probably, I'm doing this off the top of my head, and you can certainly check on Wikipedia or something and get a better idea, but the Babylon of Hammurabi. And I can remember as a schoolboy, when we were studying history, that Hammurabi was presented 
alongside of Moses as a great lawgiver. And you've all, I think, heard of the Code of Hammurabi, which is the Babylonian law code. Well, that's the old Babylonian empire. That empire faded and went the way of other empires. The empire under Nebuchadnezzar is yet, as I say, about 120 or so years future from Isaiah. And of course, we said several times, but not immediately, so I'll say it again. When Jeremiah tells Judah that they're going into captivity and their captivity will be for 70 years, the whole point is you guys have not been celebrating my Shmeta years and my Jubilees. So you owe the land 70 years of rest to make up for the years that you did not rest when I told you to. In the Torah, it says every seventh year, you don't sow. You just eat what the land produces naturally, and food is for everybody. And then, of course, on the 50th year is a double jubilee. And Israel hadn't done it. So God says, I'm going to send you into exile for 70 years, and the land is going to rest in recompense for the rest you didn't give it. Back to Babylon now. The Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar lasted 70 years. So what God did is he raised Nebuchadnezzar up out of nothing. They came down, took Judah out, took Judah back to Babylon, and then 70 years after that, the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. So the second Babylonian Empire lasted exactly the length of exile that God had decreed for Judah. But all of that at this point is in the future. So when Isaiah talks about the virgin daughter of Babylon, the conquest of Babylon then is 140 some odd years in the future. You know, the concept of virgin daughter, the concept of royalty, the concept of some woman who is lifted up high to then have her have to expose her legs so she can get down on her hands and knees and grind wheat with a millstone is humiliation. And of course, the idea of uncovering her nakedness would also be a disgrace to her. Let's at this point switch over to Revelation. As I said earlier, the ultimate fate of Babylon is in Revelation 14, 16, 17, and 18. And the phrase, Babylon is fallen, that occurs twice. It occurs in Revelation 14, where one of the three angels who come out says Babylon is fallen. And then what we'll have in 18 is a complete description of the fall of Babylon. And that again goes, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And that's the one where the ship captains are sitting off shore looking at it and everybody's weeping and wailing because of the loss of the wealth that Babylon represented. I want to be in 17, which is neither one of those places, because there's a point I would like to make. Revelation 17, and I'll pick it up in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. 
And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Yeshua. The place I wanted to arrive at was verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. Now, why do I want to be there? Because what this should do, I hope, at least it does for me, is it takes you back to the book of Genesis. And what is the first human rebellion after the flood? The Tower of Babel. So after the flood, you have Noah and his three sons and their wives who come out and God tells them specifically to scatter and be fruitful and fill the earth. What they do instead is they all come together on the plain of Shinar, which is Babylon. And that's where they build a monument or a tower. And the purpose of the tower is so that they can make a name for themselves so they will not be forgotten. So Babylon or Babel is the beginning of the post flood rebellions against God. It all comes from there. So what it's saying here in Revelation is it started at the Tower of Babel and it has never gone away and Babylon then is the poster child for all the sin and abomination of humanity since the flood and until the seventh bowl in Revelation. That's why I wanted to go to 17.5. What I wanted to do is tie Isaiah 47 and the destruction of Babylon to the ultimate destruction of Babylon. Certainly Babylon of Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, is going to be conquered by the Medes and the Persians. But the spirits, angels or the demons, depending on how you look at them, associated with Babylon do not go away. And God regards her as a prostitute. And in God's economy, what is a prostitute? The worshiper of other gods. Someone who commits spiritual adultery. Who does not put the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob first. So when Babylon is described as the mother of prostitutes, what he's saying is, this is where the idolatry started. This is where it spread from. And all idols and all idol worship has its beginning in Babylon. Not with Nebuchadnezzar, but back after the flood. And back in Isaiah 47, verse 5. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the age you made your yoke exceedingly heavy, you said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you do not lay these things to heart or remember their end. The 
idea here is when Babylon is riding high and doing well, she believes that she will be so forever. And what God is saying is that's not what's going to happen, Cookie. We'll have two conquests of Babylon. We'll have the one with the Medes and the Persians, and then we'll have the one at the end of the age. And by the way, the one at the end of the age may not be literal, physical Babylon on the Euphrates, because what the spiritual powers behind Babylon do is they follow the seat of empire. So lots and lots and lots of people, when they read Revelation and the whore of Babylon and so forth, think it's Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, because you got seven hills and, and all that kind of stuff. And certainly the spiritual wickedness of Babel does, in fact, fetch up in Rome for a time. It fetches up lots of places for a time. It may, in fact, be in Washington for a time. So understand that this destruction that happens in Revelation 18 may not be the city on the Euphrates. It may be wherever Babylon is lodged at that time, which could be any of the world's imperial capitals. It could be Beijing, could be London, could be Brussels, could be Rome. I mean, there's lots of places that can be candidates there. Let's go to eight. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Notice that Babylon is the mistress of the occult. Certainly it all began back in the garden, but the beginning of Babylon as being the center of the occult, being the center of idol worship, all of that is after the flood at the Tower of Babel. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. A couple of things here. No one sees me. The poster child for that is Psalm 73, by the way. The wicked say, God isn't paying any attention. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. And of course, the idea here is God is slow to anger, long-suffering, and gives people plenty of rope. So it is very human, if you will, to believe that you've gotten away with it. You haven't. So Babylon thinks that she's gotten away with it, and she hasn't. And then down in 11, evil shall come upon you, which you shall not know how to charm away. We use the word charming in an incorrect sense. We say a young lady is charming, and that's a compliment. It is not a compliment here. A charm, in this case, is a magical thing that is designed to bend somebody's will to what you want to have happen, witchcraft. So you don't know how to charm away is not a compliment. 
and then disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. One of the things that I am trying to do is rid my language of catastrophe and disaster because those two words both mean the stars are against you. Disaster means the stars are displaced or the stars are not aligned to your benefit. So something has gone wrong because the stars are misaligned. And catastrophe also comes from stars or astrology. In verse 11, I think disaster is actually a pretty good word here because one of the things that the Chaldeans were known for is astronomy. They were the first astronomers. They are the reason that a circle is divided into 360 degrees because the year used to be 360 days. They are the ones who first mapped out the stars. They were able to do pretty much anything a modern astronomer can do without the aid of radars and high-powered glass and so forth. They were very good. They also operated, by the way, on a base 12 number system. And 12 is an excellent number base because it's divisible by 2, 3, 4, and 6. Problem is we don't have six fingers. If we had six fingers, it would have been a lock. But we don't have six fingers. We've only got five. So the decimal system, but actually base 12 makes a lot of sense. Anyway, back in verse 10. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. Again, Babylon was regarded as a center of human wisdom. It would have been the Cambridge and Oxford of its day. And in fact, when Solomon was described as the wisest of men, Israel would have been regarded as an intellectual backwater. The intellectual centers of that part of the world were Babylon and Egypt. Nobody ever heard of anybody from Israel. And the idea that he would exalt himself as the wisest of men would have been like somebody from the junior college down the street saying that, I have discovered something that all the dons in Oxford don't know. I mean, it's that kind of a thing. So the idea here is, is again, he's mocking them because their intellectual knowledge was legendary. That echoes us today in the hubris of our knowledge. And we think with all of our knowledge and ability to control our environment, that we have no need of God's blessings anymore. And it is a very common thing to look upon the Bible as, well, that's just an old book that was written by a bunch of desert nomads a couple thousand years ago. What did they know? And that's intellectual hubris. And we are very much subject to it. Wisdom and knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, the heart is the place where your desires live. Wisdom and knowledge are in the head. The heart rules the head. But if the heart looks at the wisdom and knowledge that is in the head and then gets itself puffed up, it can be led astray. All the way down to verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. Now, at this point, we're going into trash talk. God has told them what's going to happen. And he said, okay, you think you're going to be able to forestall this or put it off or prevail over what I am saying? Give it your best shot, babe. Stand fast in your enchantment and your sorceries. You know, maybe it'll work. Snark, because it's not going to work. 
13. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. As I mentioned earlier, Babylon was a world center of astronomy, also a world center of astrology. Astronomy is benign. That is studying the movements of the stars and the planets and and the celestial objects. Astrology means knowledge from the stars, which is to say you try and predict future events based on the alignment of stars. Very popular in Boulder, I'm told. So, 13, so you are worried with your many counsels, let them stand forth and save you. In other words, you got all this astrological wisdom and knowledge you think, let's see if it'll save you. Get them up here, is what it's saying. This is another one of those trash-talking things that has been going on throughout this part of the book of Isaiah, starting back in early chapter 40. This is God through the prophet trash-talking the wisdom and the power and the sorcery of Babylon. 14. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. What he's saying here is fire is a great gift. It can be benign. This one is not. This is not a controllable fire. This is not a fire that's in a fireplace or a hearth or something like that. This is a wildfire that is going to consume everything before it. So no coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. If you go back to Revelation, in this case chapter 18, that's where the ship captains are offshore and they're seeing the flames and the burning of Babylon and they're lamenting the loss of trade and the loss of goods, but they aren't trying to save her. They ain't taking their ships and driving up to the port and trying to put all the fires out and, and rescue Babylon. They're all standing off in the ocean saying, oh no, it's gone. And that's what God is saying here. Verse 15, such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. Remember, this is our ship captains that have been doing business with Babylon ever since Babel. And they wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. We see the detailed outworking of that in Revelation 18. All right, now, 48. What's going to happen here is we're going to talk about a servant. And the first time I read through it, I said, this is Israel. Then I read a commentary that said, no, this is the Messiah. So we'll unpack that as we get to it, because it, it is interesting. So we're in Isaiah chapter 48 now. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So he's talking to Judah in exile. And he's saying those who confess the name of the Lord, but not in truth. In other words, 
for those of you who were around when we did Jeremiah a few years back. And of course, Jeremiah is prophesying at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Judah. And one of the things he says is, hey, you guys say, we have the house of the Lord for protection. The house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. There it is, right there, the temple, I can see it. And God, through the prophet, says, you have made it a den of robbers. The temple has become to you like a hideout, where once you have committed crimes, you run to your hideout, the temple. And you don't run there to repent, but you run there to seek respite from the sheriff who is chasing you. And what God is saying is, (laughs) you may call on the name of the Lord, but the Lord is not going to listen to you because you are treating his temple like it was a thief's hideout. So here in 48.1, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. So the reason you guys are in exile is you call on the name of the Lord, you know who he is, you know what the scriptures say, but you don't walk it. Your behavior is such that you are confessing the name of God, but you're not confessing it in truth or in right. Down to verse 3. The former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. And suddenly I did them and they came to pass. By the way, this is in contradistinction to all of the trash talk that has been happening up until now about idols. The prophet periodically says, hey, you got your gods? Let's trot them out. Have them tell us what's going to happen. Let's see who can do it. So what our God is saying here is, I predicted it, I announced it, and then I did it, in contradistinction to the idols. Verse 4, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, My idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So what he's saying is, I have known you guys since Egypt. You are a stiff-necked people. What Moses says, right? So what God is saying is, I know who you are. I know what your predilections are. I know how you think. So what I did is I announced this stuff to you way in advance so that when it comes to pass, you will not be able to say that your idols did it but you can go back and look at the scriptures and see where I predicted it. This is more trash talk to the idols. Verse 6. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. So what he's saying here is, uh, guys, the reason you're going to Babylon is because I said that was what was going to happen clear back in Deuteronomy. If you didn't follow my commandments, you didn't honor me, you didn't do what I said you do, you're going to go into exile. I didn't tell you it was going to be Babylon then, but I told you what was going to happen. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to tell you something that wasn't in the Torah, that hasn't been heard from of old. So you have things that have been heard from of old, and I told you those so that you would know that I am able to predict, whereas your idols are not. And now I'm going to tell you something new. So verse 6 again. You have heard, now see all this. And will you not declare it? 
From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. Strong letter to follow. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Remember, God periodically in the Torah would tell Moses, get out of my way, I'm going to wipe them all off, and I'm going to start over with you. So Israel continually is tempting God to do away with them. But for my name's sake, God's name's sake, I defer my anger. Now, again, keep in mind that this is all written a hundred and some odd years before Judah goes into exile. He's talking to Judah. Remember up at the beginning of the chapter, he said, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who come from the waters of Judah. So he's talking to Judah here, and he's telling them stuff that is not going to happen for another hundred and some odd years. I'm in verse 9. For in my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not be cut off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. All of this is by way of refining Israel. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Obviously, back to the creation. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. Notice, we started off back a chapter ago, and besides spiritual adultery, besides whoredom, besides sorcery, besides all that stuff, what was God's main complaint about Babylon? The fact that he dealt harshly with Israel. I used you as my instrument to chasten Israel, Judah, and you treated them with rigor. So now we're down here, and what God is talking about is what he is going to do with Babylon, and the reason for that approximately nearby, how they are going to treat Judah. The reason for that distally, far away, is for their spiritual adultery. Understand what's going on? we got two things going on there. One is recompense for unnecessary roughness when they take out Judah. The other one is for being the mother of harlots and corrupting the whole world, and that happens in Revelation. So verse 14 again. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. So the Lord loves him, Israel, and because the Lord loves Israel, he shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will 
prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time I came to be, I have been there. Now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now we've just changed, haven't we? Comment was, starting with Vels 12 and 13, we're talking about the Messiah. And you may be right. I'm, I'm not. But up until now, the voice has been God. Starting in verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Who's I? God the Father. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver and so forth. For my sake, my own sake, I do it. That's God the Father. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I call. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. Now, from Christian theology, those are things about the Messiah, but the person has not changed in this flow. But it's going to change. Pick it up in 14 now. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. Now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. I'm suggesting now you have a change. If you want to say the change occurred up here in verse 12, I'm fine with that, but there isn't any grammatical indication that it has. At least in my translation, it is not clear that 12 and 13 are the Messiah speaking. But as you get down to verse 16, you have what I see as a shift. I see a person shift there. By the way, as we're going back and forth with whose voice is what, as I say, as I read through that, the first place I get an indication of change is perhaps verse 14. Up until then, it all flows in the voice of the Father. Starting in 14, you have what I consider to be a change in voice. And whether you choose that to be 12 or 14, it is what it is. However, if you are a Jew reading this, it's all God the Father. So verse 16, draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So I see a shift there. I could also easily see a shift back at the beginning of 14. I find a shift at the beginning of 12 less clear. So verse 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it to the end of the earth, and say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he sent them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now, when we get down to chapter 49, that's where the first time I read through this, it read very much like Israel was the servant. 
And then I read a commentary, and they said, no, 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 it can't be Israel, it's got to be the Messiah, and, and went on and showed why, and we'll do that next time. But boy, if I were a Jew and not a believer in Christ, I wouldn't find that argument convincing. And I'll show you what it is when we get there next time. So we close now with a question of, as Kay said, she very much hears Psalm 2 in the area from 48.12 to the end of the chapter. And for those of you who are not familiar with Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a conversation in three parts. And if you take Psalm 2 and you just parse the grammar, it turns out there are three voices there. You have a narrator, who I believe is the Holy Spirit, who then talks about the Father, who then speaks of his Son, and then the Son speaks. So you have all three voices going on throughout this psalm. And what Kay is asserting, and I'm not really arguing with her, is that that kind of a conversation is going on starting in verse 12 of Isaiah 48. And the only thing that leads me perhaps to agree with her is in verse 16 where it ends with, and now the Lord has sent me and his spirit. And that could be Isaiah, the prophet who is speaking, or it could be Yeshua, the son. But as I have said before, and I will say again now, poetic, prophetic language was designed to be difficult when it was written. The whole purpose of it was to put out a prophecy so that when Israel goes into exile and finds themselves sitting by the canals in Babylon and wondering what the heck happened, they can go back to the prophets and the prophets in hindsight will warn them of what has now happened. But remember in Isaiah 6, the prophet is told, make the ears dull and the eyes dim or whichever way it was so that you'll speak to these people but they will not turn and repent lest I should heal them. So the message of the prophet is in code speak and I will suggest that for us at this time since some of that stuff that is going on is still yet future it is every bit as difficult to understand for us as it would have been for them. So we can sit here and argue about whether we have a conversation in three voices or not but I'm not going to put any money on it either way. I'm not saying that the argument's unreasonable. It's a reasonable argument.